You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 125. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. And you can send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net where you can find all our other social links at the top of the page. And with that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. Uh, and I'm Michael Outlaw. I think I got it. Nailed it. This was really good. I was like, where is he? <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications, allowing you to see inside any stack, any app, at any scale, anywhere. And Educative.io. Level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. And Clubhouse is the fast and enjoyable project management platform that breaks down silos and brings teams together to ship value, not just features. All right, now we're continuing on with the last segment of Chapter 2 of Designing Data-Intensive Apps, uh, talking about query languages. But first, we got a little bit of news. Yep. So, uh, as always, well, first of all, I mean, we got to talk about the elephant in the room. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's just Joe and I, this episode, Alan is off at NDC London and, uh, left us here on our own devices. So here we are talking. Yep. Not bitter, not bitter at all. Not bitter. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Cause he's, gets, he gets to meet all our friends that we've met over the years on Slack. Uh, you know, yep. they're on the other side of the pond. So, uh, all right. Well, as always, we like to say thank you to those that left left us a review. So we'll start with iTunes, and we have uh, three deviant Ryan in Ryan's world twenty three. All right. Over on Stitcher, we got Thomas VC Thu S Witcher four uh, Dave the shirt and Yarp Skindaya. Man, you guys did pretty so good. I've never heard of a that. Witcher though. That's weird. Anyway, what? Is it like somebody who makes witches? The Witcher? Yeah, the Witcher. Are you trolling me? Come on, yeah. man. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm the only one on the planet who hasn't watched the show yet. And oh. I, of course, I'm aware of the video game. But yeah, the Witcher keeps coming up over and over again. And so I was delighted to see it as a Stitcher review. And okay. uh, it was just another reminder that I need to <laughs> go watch the show right now. That makes so much more sense. But... You are you are not alone, and I will say I will go so far as to say you are in good company because I too haven't seen it. All right, I, I haven't I haven't taken the time to watch the show yet, but I have heard nothing but good things about it. All right, well, I'll tell you what, uh, go leave us a spoiler in the comments. No, no, <laughs> now I can't ever read the comments. Sorry, yeah, yeah, don't don't spoil don't spoil the Witcher for us in the comments, and uh, you'll have a chance at winning the book that we'll be giving away to go along with this episode. So, and drop that comment over there on uh, codingbox.net slash one twenty five. Yep, hey, is that right? Is it slash episode one twenty five slash episode one twenty five? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that. What did you say the first time? Then what you said the first time? No, you just said well, slash. I don't say it wrong again. Yeah, you're right. Don't say it wrong a second time. All right. Well, we got some conferences coming up. So obviously, uh, you know, we already mentioned Alan being gone for this one, but. Yep. Uh, South Florida uh, Software DevCon is coming up. I'm going to be talking about streaming architectures. So uh, we're going to be doing uh, GraphQL through uh, Hasura and a little bit of Kafka and showing you what it looks like uh, on the back end and front end. 
And if you remember, we talked about uh, all of that in the episodes we did about the three-factor app. So definitely going to be kind of leaning heavily on that research there, and I think it's going to be awesome. Yep, and all three of us will be at the Orlando Code Camp uh, this March 28th. So, uh, you know, stop by, try to kick us in the shins, uh, grab some swag. You know, somebody pointed out, though, that it was you specifically, Joe, that liked to be kicked in the shins. So I guess maybe. It's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, I always joke about that. Like, you know, anytime we're going to be somewhere, if you look at the show notes, there's always like, hey, kick Alan in the shins. He'll be in London. Or, you know, hey, we're all being Orlando. Kick us all in the shins. Yeah. So Alan does not like that joke. He doesn't. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, Alan is like, Alan's afraid to get kicked in the shins. I did not uh, know that. Okay. Yeah. That makes it even better. So definitely. He's definitely scared of it. So make sure to mention that to him if you would, if you run into him over at NDC. All right. Well, um, all right. So let's get into it. So uh, as, as Joe said, we are continuing to talk about designing data intensive applications and uh, we are into query languages. So specifically, let's talk a little bit about declarative versus imperative. And, you know, I thought about, I don't know, have we ever really discussed the two into any kind of detail in the past? Because I don't think that we have. Am I wrong? Yeah, you know, we once, uh, in one of the episodes on deliberate practice, actually, we talked about the difference between uh, imperative, explicit, and implicit declarative. <laughs> It was more about like basically building memory, muscle memory, so you can kind of do things automatically by thinking at a higher level abstraction. And that's the only time we've ever really touched on that. We've never really talked about it in the context of programming languages, which is the only way I've ever really heard it before that. Hmm. Well, okay. So, well, this is going to be our opportunity then to dig into it a little bit more. So, um, at least from the book, they say that the you know, we've talked about the different models that came along, right? So there was the relational model, document models. So they said that the relational model introduced the a new declarative language that we know and love as SQL, right? I think that's a fair statement to say that we all you know, know and love it, especially love-ish. the love part. Ish? No, no, yeah. no, come on. You, yeah. there, you have no bad things to say about SQL. That's not true. Just, just try to name one thing off the top of your head. You can't do it. Sorting. Yeah, you can't. No, dynamic sorting? No. That's, what? No. Yeah. Just sorting in, yeah, dy- dynamic group buys. Like, come on. Yeah. So here was the interesting thing, though, is that like prior to uh, relational models and and with it, the advent of the declarative um, query language se- that we know as SQL, uh, prior models used imperative code, right? So uh, if you had to think about like, okay, Let's back up what's imperative, what's declarative, right? So in imperative language, you perform certain operations in a certain order. So basically think of like most programs that you've ever written where it's like, hey, do this, then do that, or if this, then do that. You know, th- th- That would be an imperative language, like the actual code, right, the, to do something. Versus a declarative language, you specify the pattern of data that you want and the conditions that must be met, you know, for, so for example, any sorting or grouping. So, uh, you know, when you think about the typical select, um, I'm sorry, the, your typical SQL syntax, um, you know, that, that is a declarative language. So select column one from table, you know, from my table where, uh, 
column two equals four, right? And, and so, you know, you're not saying how it has to be done. You're just describing, Hey, what I want is what's in the select statement. And I'm telling you a pattern where I want it, which is where, uh, column two equaled four. And maybe I might add some additional like grouping or sorting onto that. Right. Uh, which is Joe's favorite thing about SQL. Grr. <laughs> like you imagine if it did actually do those things in that order, like you say, select first name last time. It's like, all right. I'll be back in a minute. I'm grabbing all the first names and last names. And you're like, no, wait, wait. Here's the table I want it from. And it's like, oh, crap. Okay, let me filter it down. And, you're like, and here's the where clause where user ID equals one. And it's like, oh, okay, you only need one of these. I, I fetched all of them. Up. Right. Oh, okay, give me a minute. Yeah, and especially now imagine if that's like on network traffic flying over the network and there's like a billion uh, records in there. Like that would be awful, right? Right. Um, uh, doing it declaratively, which uh, kind of has a basis in like mathematical, uh, like algebraic set notation. Um, it's kind of where the, the worlds collided there. And, and that's how we kind of ended up with some of the terms like, uh, select and, um, intersection union, things like that are kind of common things that you see in those kind of mathy type situations. But, uh, it gives by having a declarative language, we can kind of turn that stuff over to the query opt- optimizer that we talked about last time and let it figure out the best way. So yeah. not only is it doing like the frums and the wares, but it's also able to do them in a smart order based on information statistics that it's, it's stored about your data. Yes, that, that is the, that is the key point to make here, uh, that we, we can't, we will say it a second time because it, it shouldn't be understated is that with the declarative language, because we are not taking the time to specify the how we leave that up to the optimizer to figure out. And so, uh, you know, there's some other advantages to that, but you know, that was kind of the secret sauce that we talked about before in, you know, like what really differentiates an Oracle from a SQL uh, or a Postgres, right? Was that, that query optimizer. But, um, you know, there's other advantages and uh, I, I, I might have this later in the notes, but, you know, cause one thing that comes to mind is that by leaving it up to the SQL optimizer, you can take advantage of future upgrades to that optimizer, right? Without having to make a lot of change to your code. So, um, yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I'm hit, skipping ahead because I feel like I have that somewhere else, but, um, so let's just skip that. We'll move along. We'll come back to it if we don't, if we, if it's not in there, but we'll say that declarative languages, uh, can be, uh, or are sometimes considered more attractive because, uh, they can be shorter and easier to work with. But I think that's really like a sometimes thing. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know your opinion on that, Joe. Uh, I was just over here trying to think which declarative language I was most attracted to. And, it, uh, so it's definitely not SQL. But, you know, HTML looks pretty good. And, uh, you know, there's CSS is another one I'm kind of familiar with. Uh, those, so those are two, you know, I guess, uh, I don't know. HTML5 is, is pretty, pretty hot, I guess. Yeah. I was thinking like some UI frameworks can be rather tedious, uh, sometimes where like, you know, they have magic things happening. And because you're just doing it declaratively, you might not realize all the things that are happening in the background and not know or, you know, be aware of some of the bad things that might be coming out as a result. So sometimes it can be more attractive and sometimes it can be really tedious, but that's definitely going to be a case by case. I would say in large part, though, more, I would agree with the more attractive Right. Yeah, I've seen some weird stuff too. Like you know, XAML is the one that kind of pops into mind where it's uh, it's declarative in that it's kind of like XML based language. You define you know things, and it's up to a rendering engine to kind of do that. But then it also has like constructs for things like looping, 
which is kind of, it's a weird paradigm to kind of fit into that. And yeah, you basically end up doing it via some sort of binding or something where you say like, Hey, here's a list of items and here's the data that populates it. But it's just kind of a, I don't know, it's weird kind of mix where you've got some logic behind it that ultimately needs to tie to it. So you're mixing declarative and imperative there and it just gets a little weird. Yeah. And, and that's actually a great example because, uh, you know, I wanted to mention here too, like when we talk about some of these declarative languages, you know, UI frameworks specifically, like, and one of the ideas that came to mind as a way to, you know, um, maybe familiarize people with the, the idea here is that, you know, you could, there are, you mentioned XAML, but there's many UI frameworks out there where you can like describe what you need, what you want the UI to look like without actually having to write the button. You know, like for example, with HTML, for example, right? You, you can just describe the, kind of like the layout of the the content, but you don't actually have to write the code that actually draws the specific button in the specific size with a specific label. You know, like you don't you don't do that part. You get to take advantage of it of you know the framework that's actually going to run it. Yeah, and you know uh, when I first started learning to to program, uh, you know, like outside of like grade school kind of experiments, whatever. Like uh, I kind of learned HTML like early on because that was kind of becoming big and I had a job opportunity. And so that's kind of where I came from. And then when I started going to school for computer science, like, you know, around the same time uh, or maybe like a year or two later, and I started messing around with consoles. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make some cool console games or I'm going to try and, and do some graphics type stuff. It was like set pen red, <laughs> set fill one, set position zero comma zero. And, you know, I'm just trying to draw a red line. Right, know? right, right. <laughs> That's kind of how you got started. And that was to do that uh, imperatively was just a nightmare. You know, it's like that turtle, like the logo kind of left, oh, yeah. right, whatever. It was just a nightmare way of rendering. And, of course, if you look, spend any time looking at game frameworks or anything, or any, like, advanced drawing libraries, uh, you don't do very much of that stuff. It's more about, like, defining models and the camera and then kind of letting the graphics engine render that. Yeah, I, I can remember some of my first um, programs in, like, C doing similar kind of uh, you know, game drawing, you know, where game kind of apps just for the learning purposes. But, you know, yeah, to your point, like I'm specifically saying like, draw this bitmap here and erase everything else, like erase everything and draw the bitmap here now. And, and like, yeah, it was awful. I wouldn't want to go back to it again, but I also had like, maybe, huh, this is probably an unpopular opinion. And, and I definitely, don't think I would feel the same way about it, but I used to have this like kind of bullish opinion years ago that like I, I, I could probably say that I was probably jerkish about it. Maybe uh, if I look back on it, but you know, where like somebody would say like, uh, you know, that they were like an HTML programmer and I'm like, mm, I don't know if I consider that a programming language. Like, ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but would you say that a SQL programmer isn't a programmer? Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like, my, my views are kind of like different now, right? But back then it was like, think, well, think about like how simple HTML used to be. Oh, yeah. You know, and then for somebody to be like, I'm an HTML programmer. And it's like, are you? Yeah. Really? Like, like after you get the frame set up, it's easy, it's easy going. <laughs> like, you, 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 it's a table. I don't know. But, but again, it was, I get, I'm probably going to, you know, a lot of hate coming my way. Uh, you can, you can send that all to, uh, you can hit me up on Slack at Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen all the like CSS animations and stuff people are doing? People are always oh. being like, 
Here's the Breath of the Wild intro done in only uh, CSS. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know that I I don't know that I would say that anymore, though, right? Because especially like things that you can do in HTML5 now, I'm like, man, it's it's insane compared to where it used to be, right? And yeah, to your point, there have been entire you know crazy uh, simulations or games or environments that are created just in HTML and CSS, which is all declarative, but yet it works amazingly. Yeah, it used to be just like more advanced word. You know, it's like you yeah. kind of decided where to put the P's and like you need a table, you put it on a table. There wasn't a lot of thought to it. But now you see the stuff that people are doing with like, I don't know, like the grids and stuff like CSS grids or just kind of um, like the flows, making things responsive. And like now it's a, it's pretty advanced and it does take a lot of uh, creativity, creativity visually, but also uh, even to get a design and to make it so it kind of composes down well. And works on a phone or a website or everything like it takes a like a good amount of skill. Well, I think to to your point, I think that's why I kind of had that bullish opinion that I used to have, which was that. Do you remember like I think it was the old versions of like WordPerfect, where um, you know it was kind of similar, you know, the same type. It wasn't the exact same syntax, but the same similar kind of concepts. Like if you wanted something to be bold as you were writing it, like you actually wrote the code in like. Start the bold here, in the bold there, right? Mm-hmm. You remember that? Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> that's why when HTML came along, it's like, well, okay. I mean, I've, I've, I didn't consider when I was writing my documents for assignments that was programming. So why would I consider this programming? So right. you know, that was my old opinion. But yeah, all right. So uh, again, all your hate mail can be sent to me on Slack <laughs> at Alan. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so. Uh, additionally, I think we kind of already hit on this, but the declarative languages hide those implementation details. So we kind of talked about this in regards to the query optimizer, right? Like you're, you're, you write that declarative, uh, select statement and you don't say anything about how or, you know, how to actually perform the query and you just get to take advantage of the optimizer figuring that out for you. And then as, uh, future optimizers come along, right, you get that benefit too. So you don't. And, and it's because you don't focus on those implementation details and you're unaware of those implementation details that you can take advantage of future updates to the optimizer. You know, um, and we didn't really kind of mention it in this context, but uh, declarative is like super in right now. Uh, you can think of as React as being a very declarative kind of focused uh, framework because you basically – uh, write what the state should be and the browser is responsible and React is responsible for kind of getting you to that state. Uh, stuff like Kubernetes too. You define your environment uh, in the state that you want it and it's responsible for figuring out how to start, stop or whatever based on the parameters in order to get you to that state. Um, we, like we've, I don't know if we've ever talked about like things like um, Salt or uh, Chef or Puppet too, which are kind of declarative in that you say like this is you know, my environment, these are the services that should be up. These are the, the versions they should be running and it's responsible for making that happen. And so uh, we keep seeing more and more of this kind of functional influence from language and mathematics or, or whatever, just kind of taking over the, the world more and more. And uh, we keep spending more and more of our time uh, editing YAML nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's our world. Yeah. It's that's so the true. downside. <laughs> uh, it's such a great way to think about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, like I said, you, you get to take advantage of, um, the under uh, updates to the underlying engine, but it also, because with declarative code, this also means that you can take advantage of performance enhancements with little to no change. Uh, you know, because the code with little to no change to your declarative code as those updates are made. And also 
not always, but sometimes, depending on like what we're talking about here, often at times, because it is declarative, it's actually more portable as well. So, you know, a select statement that I write in SQL Server is going to be very similar to a SQL statement that I might write in Postgres or DB2, for example. Now, obviously, you can get you can start to get advanced with like, you know, um, if you wanted to do a select top 10 versus a select limit 10, you know, uh, so there are going to be some differences in it. But you, you, you know what I'm saying? They're like, <clears throat> like HTML, for example, HTML is a great example. HTML as it runs in Firefox is very similar, going to produce a very similar output to the, the HTML that would run inside of Chrome or Safari or, you know, Edge, mm-hmm. which is really Chrome. And- it's getting harder nowadays with better broadband, but it used to be able to see how the, um, and, and better hardware and better software, uh, used to be able to see how pages would kind of pop in and rearrange and redraw as more information kind of, uh, was available. Now things are, are better. They call it jitter when, uh, when websites do that. But, uh, yeah, back in, back in the day when, you know, if you on dial-up or whatever, you could really notice when the style sheet was finally downloaded and applied and stuff like that. And so uh, you got to see a little bit more of that, which is cool. But I mean, even the rules on that kind of changes. So you used to optimize by putting, uh, maybe your CSS at the top because you wanted the page to look good earlier. Maybe put it at the bottom so you could load the content faster or whatever. You can kind of strategize a little bit about that, but that, that stuff's not as important anymore. Now, here's a here's an interesting one that <clears throat> before reading the book I hadn't really considered. But because declarative languages only need to specify the result instead of how to get the result, they tend to uh more likely be more likely to be able to take advantage of parallel execution. Okay, that means you don't have to be smart about deciding when things can be paralyzed, but it can. Yeah. Okay, and in the HTML example, I guess you could think like the, the rendering and the loading of the data from your browser should be going on at the same time, right? Like one's not necessarily related to the other. Yeah. And, and think about it because they say conversely, like imperative code is, is more difficult to paralyze because things need to happen in a specific order. So think about any parallel code you've ever written before in your life, right? Anytime you've ever had to manage threads on your own, it was always more complicated. Oh, yeah. But then, like yeah. to your point, you know, take your React example. That that might actually be an even better example. Like, think of all those different React components, right? And how they could be, you know, drawn. Well, it's because of JavaScript. I hate, I hate to say it happening concurrently, but you get the idea. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the React's um, working on that suspense feature, which I don't really understand a whole lot about, but uh, basically allows some things to kind of happen async and you don't have to make any changes necessarily to your code in order for some of those things to take effect. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's cool. And the shadow DOM is even interesting too. Like React, you kind of, you make your changes based on your state and it's possible for those changes to result in no rendering needed, but you don't have to make that decision and, make that call. You basically just do your thing and it's going to update a virtual model. And if that virtual model is different than the physical, physical, that the model that the browser has, then it's going to apply that change. Otherwise it's not going to bother. And you don't have to be a part of any of that, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, it always seems like the less that you, the more that you can do with less then that's just fewer bugs that you're going to have to worry about. Right. Yeah. And I, I could write plenty of, bugs without very much code at all. So the less I have to write, the better. 
Now, I say that, but I could write plenty of bugs in SQL. So just give me a chance. <laughs> I can make it happen. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. It's uh, The subtleties are tough. But uh, speaking of tough, uh, have you ever done much work with MapReduce? So um, it's been a minute, like several years now since I did anything with it. And it kind of like uh, for many years, it kind of, um, how would you say, like tainted my view of Hadoop. Okay, that that sounds bad, but it definitely like um, made me think of Hadoop in a certain light. Like every time I would think of Hadoop, I would always think of it in a MapReduce res- uh, mindset. So you, if you if you ever started to talk to me about Hadoop fossils, I'm like, what, what, no, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, you ever get like you, you know you start to associate one thing with you know something with one thing, and then like forever in your mind, it's yep. hard to get out of that mindset. So yeah, linked. Yeah, I've done a little bit, um, but uh, yeah, I've done like the examples on websites, which are awesome and great, and it works out really well. And it makes sense, like when you do like the little getting started with, uh, you know, Mongo or MapReduce or something, and then you try to do like a real world example, and you start running into all these little things that you didn't realize that, especially coming from a SQL background, it's like I'm just used to kind of be um take for granted. Now all of a sudden, I'm like having to very specifically think about like say my any aggregations I'm doing or whatever, and how that applies to, to both of these two functions I'm writing, the map and the reduce. Yeah, so um, let's take a moment back to step back here. So obviously we're talking about MapReduce, which was made popular by Google. And it's a, a programming model meant for processing large amounts of data in bulk that can be horizontally uh, bleh, horizontally distributed. So um, that that's its real big advantage here is the fact that you could do all these things in a uh, distribute it horizontally. So um, some... NoSQL databases such as uh, MongoDB and CouchDB support MapReduce in a limited form as a way to perform some read-only queries across many documents, um, which is kind of cool. I think that you know they would even provide that kind of functionality. Um, also, maybe it's scary. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so MapReduce though doesn't fit into. I, I, oh wait, uh, don't look ahead. Uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't have put that one in there, but don't look ahead, Joe. Let's okay. see if you know it off the top of your head. So it it isn't a declarative query language, but it's also not entirely an imperative query API either. So what okay. pattern would you say it follows? Oh well, it's got to be template or uh, Hollywood, as we like to talk about. There it is. The yeah, this is because you know to implement MapReduce, you would be implementing the template pattern. Or as Joe referred to it, the Hollywood principle, i.e. I'll call you, don't call me. And uh, we've talked about the template pattern before. It's actually come up multiple times, but we first talked about it it, way back in episode 16. So, yeah, what was that, like 109 episodes ago? Yeah, it was a while. (laughs) That's crazy. It's been a minute, is what Alan would say. It's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So, Oh, what was it? Somebody had a joke. Uh that they were betting Alan couldn't go an episode without saying it. And I'm going to, I'll say it later. Oh, no, I don't remember. I okay. do. I do. So I'll, I'll make sure to make, to throw that joke in later. We get uh, to make right. all these jokes because Alan's not here. So I feel fine. It's fine. It's probably okay. It's <laughs> so acceptable. At the time uh, I first started playing with uh, MapReduce, uh, you know, it was mainly <clears throat> tutorial based and a little bit of for some work stuff. But uh, JavaScript didn't have a map or reduce function. Uh, C sharp link was still kind of new. 
And so these kind of functional concepts didn't really jive very well. And so it was a very different paradigm for me. But now I think pretty much after working with link and C sharp and JavaScript map and reduce functions that I, I use pretty often, Kotlin's got map and reduce. Um, I, you know, particularly map I use all the time. And so that concept of just even saying like first you map or that's not even true. Just you have a mapper and a reducer and they work together to provide query results. Like I have a much better understanding of that just based on the mapping and reducing I do in these other languages because it's kind of similar concepts. Yeah. So with map reduce, you're going to implement two methods, a map method and a reduce method. So the book gives an example where they use the map method to reshape data into a particular pattern. And then they use the reduce method to perform an aggregate summation on the values for each key that gets passed to it. Right. Which is kind of what you were along the lines of what you were describing. Yep. Um, So, you know, but you think about that and you're like, okay, so I'm going to get some kind of pattern. I'm going to perform an aggregate summation on that. And I was like, wait a minute, that, doesn't that kind of sound like aggregate functions that you can already do with SQL, huh? Oh uh, yeah, 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 and and rightly so because the book actually later warns that uh, you know they were describing how specifically MongoDB's um, usage of the MapReduce pattern, uh, and you know the book actually warns that no a new a NoSQL system like a MongoDB might actually find itself actually accidentally reinventing SQL in disguise by yeah. doing exactly things like this. Right. Right. So I thought that was kind of like interesting, uh, you know, not necessarily a jab at MongoDB per se, but just, you know, it's like, it's always like, a something great comes along. You ever notice this? You ever notice that technologies are like this, Joe? Um, you have, you have some like all purpose, just engine that just cranks out stuff like it. But, but that engine is like, you know, uh, just a burly diesel engine. It's loud. It creates a lot of smoke and it's, it's just nasty to listen to, but it, it gets the job done, right? Like it just gets the job done. But then somebody else comes along with this lighter, smaller, you know, four cylinder that's quieter and it's got turbo on it and it's like super fast. It'll run circles around the other one. It doesn't have as much torque about it, you know, but whatever. It's, it's just, it's quick off the line, whatever, you know? Um, but you know, it doesn't have nearly the amount of horsepower. Right. And so it's like, it's, it seems like all technologies are like that. Like something leaner will come along and it does like one thing just super well, but then it starts to fall apart. Like some of those other things, it's like, yeah, okay, fine. It doesn't do that, but that's why it's able to do this other thing so fast is because it yeah. only focused on that one problem. And then, and then eventually that thing will like evolve and become popular over time. And they'll start adding in other functionality to it where it's like, Hey, wait a minute. Now they're like, they're really closer to parity with each other. And so it kind of feels like, Oh, well maybe over time, that's how MongoDB came to where it is where it's like, oh, hey, we're going to do the same kind of aggregate functions with SQL, except we're going to do it with a MapReduce functionality instead. Yep. And it keeps growing bigger and bigger. Um, and that's how like flasks, the flasks of the world end up evolving into the Django's of the world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But everything starts off with simple. And then the more popular it is, yeah, it's tempting to just keep growing and growing and growing. And that especially happens with databases, which definitely at some point, I, I don't know, I, I can't even think of a database right now that doesn't support some sort of SQL-like syntax. Oh man, that would actually be well in a relational database. 
Oh, sorry. I meant like any data store. So like Elasticsearch supports SQL. Oh. You know, it's not. Oh, database. Right. Mongo has a SQL-like language. You know? Yeah. So they may call it EQL or MQL or whatever. Like Jira has a SQL-like language, you know? Right. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, these map, re- map and reduce functions, these are pure functions. So uh, they that means that they can only use the data that's passed into them. They can't, as it relates to like a MongoDB, they can't perform additional queries and they must not have side effects. So- yeah, no. So we didn't really give an example, but I was thinking like an example might be something like if you've got a, a big data set, you might say like, uh, count me all the users who logged in yesterday. And so you might have a map function that is responsible for essentially it's like the visitor pattern where it uh, gets a node or not a, a node, uh, a person and says, did you log in yesterday? And it returns either one or zero. And that will be the map because it takes in a person and it spits out a one or zero and you're going to have a reduce function that just sums up all those ones or zeros and then comes up with a count. So you've got these two functions, one that returns one or zero and the other that sums and that's your map reduce and no side effects. You can't affect any other records. You can't look backwards. You can't do any funky stuff because yeah. Well, functions. Yeah. Because, okay, sorry, because they're pure functions. So that kind of sounds like functional programming there, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to lead there, but then I said it wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's because it is, though. I mean, pure functions are a concept used in functional programming. So, yeah, that's why it sounds like functional programming. Yeah, and the, the world every year seems to be going more and more functional-based, and SQL databases in general have kind of been there for a long time anyway. So, so then maybe all SQL developers have been years ahead of the rest of us and we're just catching up to their expertise. Don't yeah, don't tell them we There's said a that. A lot of salt problems you can solve just in SQL. <laughs> don't don't tell them we said that though. Right. Never, <laughs> of course. We'll never admit to that. You never heard it. We will That's never right. record us saying that. Hold on, wait. Uh, <laughs> too late. Um, right, uh, uh, don't forget to cut this part out. Cut this part. Yes. Yes. Um, all right. So from a usability perspective, though. It does require writing two functions that are somewhat tied together, right? Which can be, which can be more effort than just writing the single query. <clears throat> so that's strange. Yeah, I mean, because you could see how, like, think about a, just writing a MapReduce function, and you you would only like that reduce function is kind of tied to what it expects that it's going to get from the map function. So it's going to be looking for a particular uh, shape of data coming in. And that map function is probably the only thing that's going to like be producing that really. Yep. So and, you know, I think uh, when I work in JavaScript too, uh, I don't typically just have one map and one reduce. I have like map, map, filter, map, reduce. <laughs> <laughs> map, map, filter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. And then if you've got to just break that down to two uh, functions, no cheating, no, you know, none of the kind of normal uh, weird sidesteppy stuff I do in JavaScript all the time, uh, illegally against the law, uh, you can't do that sort of stuff. It's just not available. It's like it only does this one thing. It only maps, only reduces. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, following along with the usability perspectives, though, uh, a purely declarative SQL query again, would better be able to take advantage of the optimizer, which uh, you know, um, your, your imperative 
your quasi-imperative MapReduce code isn't, right? And so for this reason, MongoDB added a declarative query language that they call the aggregation pipeline, which is kind of wrapping around the MapReduce functionality. So um, its expressiveness is similar to a subset of SQL, but it's in a JSON syntax instead of, you know, the, the, you know, mathy language of uh, SQL. Yeah, and that, that's a great point, too, to, to just remind me. We've mentioned this a couple times before, too, but, like, everything's blended. There's nothing quite so cut and dry. We're talking about general trends, but I'm sure that uh, Mongo has some sort of query optimizer, and I'm sure that it can do some fancy stuff with its map and reduce that. It kind of bend the normal rules a little bit to let you do stuff, and that's just the world we live in. Like, things are always kind of creep out the edges and overlap, and so, uh, you know, nothing's quite so cut and dry, but the general trends are still there. They're still strong, and they're still good. But uh, you can imagine, like, if we only had a pure MapReduce world and we wanted to uh, look at all the users who logged in yesterday, we'd have to look at every single item and every single person and say, look at their last login time, which would be uh, absurd coming from a SQL background where you've got indexes. And so maybe if you've got that thing indexed by login date, it can only look at a very small fraction of the data, which is going to be much more fast, much more faster. Uh, to to do and that's not something that you can really do in a pure map function reduce function only yeah yeah and i want to call out too that um you know we're not necessarily picking on mongodb i know you know we've mentioned it a few times in this but that's because the examples in this portion of the book the book you know, kind of just transition to like, hey, let's focus on just MongoDB, for example, just to try to like illustrate the point, not necessarily like to, to, you know, pick on it or, you know, you know, say it has any faults or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's the most popular by far, I think. So it kind of gets a lot of like the, the things that people are frustrated with about NoSQL databases that tends to get kind of. Well, well, let's come back to that. Put a pin right. in that. Ping. Today's episode is sponsored by Datadog, a modern full-stack monitoring platform for cloud-scale applications and log metrics all in one place. From the recent report on serverless adoption and trends, Datadog found that half of their customers are using uh, EC2s and have now adopted AWS Lambda. And they've examined real-world serverless usage by thousands of companies running millions of distinct serverless functions and found half of Lambda invocations run for less than 800 milliseconds. You can easily monitor all of your serverless functions in one place and generate serverless metrics straight from Datadog. Check it out yourself by signing up for a free 14-day trial and get a free t-shirt by going to codingblocks.net slash Datadog. That's codingblocks.net slash datadog to sign up today. All right. It's that time again. Take a little break here and ask you to leave us a review because it's like the most important thing that you could do for us. It helps us a lot. We love it. It means a lot to us and it really helps us out. So if you could just take a minute and go to codingblocks.net slash review, we try to make it easy for you. Give you a couple links and uh, you don't have to install anything if you don't want to. We try to just lay it all out there to make it easy for you and we love it. So please consider it. Thank you. All right, so uh, since Alan isn't here, I didn't think it would be too fun to play a survey says, uh, you know, just the two of us. But uh, I did I did think of a survey, though, that we could go ahead and add to this one. That Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. So I see you're already, like, looking ahead, huh? 
Yeah, this is going to get controversial. I don't know if we're ready to go here. Yeah, no, we definitely are. And Kafka will be next <laughs> on the list. But this one will be, how do you pronounce data? Do you pronounce it data, where that first A is a long A, or do you pronounce it data, where that first A is a short A? Which one do you say? Uh, data after the Android. Okay. Data. So long A. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, it'd be curious to see like which one comes back as the more popular option. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes I, I use, uh, to use them differently <laughs> in context. Like there's an album that I like, uh, data learn the language. I, I think I've always pronounced it mentally as data there, but mo- you know, I default to data. Well, I know that I'm pretty sure there was like an episode, a couple episodes back where one of us, and I don't remember if it was you or Alan, uh, used it interchangeably, like in one, in the same breath, in one sentence, at the start of the sentence, it was pronounced one way. And at the end of the sentence, he pronounced it a different way, but yeah, in the same sentence. So that was pretty like, yeah, great. that's goofy. And yeah, I think I, I, I think that I do say it consistently, uh, for those contexts, which doesn't make any sense. So. I don't know. Uh, enlighten us in the comments and uh, make sure to, to vote for data. <laughs> All right. So uh, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun here, though, with, um, you know, you mentioned about you you were suspecting that MongoDB might be the most popular. So I was going to ask, uh, you know, we never did talk about the last Stack Overflow um, sur- developer survey. And so I thought, well, it might be interesting to, like, bring up some of it as it relates specifically to the topic of, you know, these, these big data applications that we've been talking about. So I guess if I were to ask you what you think the most popular document DB among stack overflow respondents, I guess you're going to tell me MongoDB or were you going to pick something else? Well, uh, it depends. Okay. (laughs) Well, if when you phrase it, like what's the most popular, popular document DB, then I instantly want to answer document DB because it's in the question. But uh, I know that we're actually talking about document well, space DBs, so yeah. I'm going to say Mongo. Well, I had it written down as document space. Yeah, I know. I just got it. I got to have to be a, a jerk. Yeah, okay. Sometimes I can't resist. Okay. Well, what if I were to rephrase that as like a NoSQL? What's your favorite? What do you think the most popular NoSQL database would be among Stack Overflow respondents? Is that is that better? Uh, you know, it's te- it's then when you say it like that. Oh. That changed my answer again. No, uh, I I think it's still probably going to be Mongo, but I think Elastic's going to be in there. Okay, Elasticsearch. So so, but you're going with but Mongo is your official answer. Yeah. Okay. Well, you would be right in picking that. But Which one? But uh, with picking Mongo. Okay. Yes. Um. So, uh, it is in the top five, but barely. Oh. Yeah, it is number five on the wow uh, most popular databases of all respondents in, on Stack Overflow. So, oh, uh, it's like Redis in there and stuff. It is, but it's not in the top five. Whoa, that was number six. You want to try again for NoSQL? Well, n- just database technology. Period. Oh, M- Mongo made the made was number five made the list. Yeah, as the number five spot. So it was the most popular of the NoSQL databases because it was, you know. Okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, one through four are going to be like 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Oracle Postgres SQL Server and and Elastic. Okay. No. Uh, you had a oh. couple. You had you you named some big names there, so you got some of them right. So I will tell you this. So MySQL was number one. Number two oh, is po- Postgres. Uh, three was SQL Server, and number four was SQLite. Wow, no Oracle in the top five? No, not in the top five. Oracle would have been, uh, let's see, eight, number eight on the list. And Elastic was number nine. All right. Yeah, which is crazy to me to think of it as a, to think of Elastic as a database technology, but I guess technically it's just another index, right? Like that's all database technologies are, but it's about creating indexes to be able to search for the data fast, right? Yeah. You know? So it's just a purpose built index. Um, yeah, I don't think I, until I saw it in that, if you had asked me before outside of the context of, of this conversation, I don't know that I would have lumped elastic search into a database though. Um, but yeah, I can see that. And and you know, something else that that never dawned on me too. Um, cause technically I kind of want to give you credit for picking Oracle when you said Oracle Postgres SQL server, because I never, realized that Oracle owns MySQL. Oh, yeah. I remember I remember when that happened. Right? I was working in MySQL at the time. I was like, uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, because it was bought by uh, Sun, who was then later bought by Oracle, and you just yep. never you never think about that, unless that's your the world you live in. And Oracle um, also bought Java, which is weird to me. Yes. Or, or they bought Sun, who, who had Java. Yeah, it's just very strange. And IBM now owns Red Hat, which is also strange. That was like one of the biggest tech acquisitions I hear that. It was like $35 billion. Uh, 35 Instagrams. <laughs> I don't remember how much it was. But that that is a weird But the, to me, the, owning the language is the weirder one to me. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, owning yeah, Java seems weird. weird. Oh, yeah. Dell uh, buying VMware was one of the other biggest tech acquisitions of all time. Oh, but, but, you know, to, to just back up on that, uh, you know, owning the language being weird though, I say that, and it doesn't bother me at all to say that, you know, C sharp is a Microsoft thing. What about say Postgres is a Microsoft thing? That would be weird. That is weird. Yeah. Yeah. That would it's be, true, that'd though. be really weird. Is it? No. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Microsoft oh, owns okay. Postgres? No, they don't. I should Postgres say is they open own source. the company that maintains, uh, that are the maintainers of the official Postgres repository. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Yep, they bought them and uh, Citus around the same time. Huh. Yep, coincidentally, I doubt it. That is curious. I did not know that. Learn something new every day. Yeah, yeah, and and Mongo being number five on the Stack Overflow survey was also consistent with where it ranked on the DB Engines We've talked about before db-engines.com. MongoDB was number five there. And in fact, the list is very similar, um, except that instead of Oracle being in the number six position, it's in the number one position on DB Engines. Yeah, I I really like db-engines.com. It seems, I don't know where exactly they get their data from, but it seems like it's really good and on point. Uh, they have documentation on how they calculate their methods. So in case if this turns out to be like a Tyobi index thing again, where you guys want to start bashing on me, but um, let's see, it's based on the use of variety. We use, measure the popularity of the system by using some of the following parameters, the number of mentions on syst- of the system on websites, general interest in the system, frequency of technical discussions about it, number of job offers, 
a number of profiles in professional networks and relevance in social networks. And mentioned AOL groups. Oh, sorry. Wait, I, I thought we were talking about Tyobi again. Oh my God. <laughs> Probably. Whatever. Uh. Whatever. Yeah. All right. So what do you think the most dreaded database or, 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 or let, let's stay, let's stay on the NoSQL focus for a okay. moment. What's the, what's the most dreaded most dreaded NoSQL database is I'm tempted to kind of say one of the relational databases that shoehorn the feature in, but I'm going to go ahead and say Mongo. Uh, no, no. no okay. Uh, wait, I'm on the wrong page. Only cause it's also the most popular. No, uh, Couchbase really is the most dreaded according to the stack overflow developer survey. Okay, I don't really know how it's different. Uh, I I don't know enough about either to tell you that either. But but what do you think the most dreaded relational is? Oracle. Yes. <laughs> I like how you didn't even think about it. You're just like Oracle, and you were so yes. matter of fact about it. It's just yes, yeah. of course it's Oracle. What are you talking about? It's Oracle. Yeah, and I you know I have a bias <clears throat> against Oracle just because I've worked so much in SQL Server and it's similar in so many ways to SQL Server and the like the little differences are so aggravating. <laughs> yeah, but you could say that about like a lot of them though, right? Yeah, but uh especially Oracle I say it about. <laughs> mm. I used to complain about Java before I loved it, and I used to complain about JavaScript before I loved it too. Maybe I'll grow to love Oracle one day. All right, well one more game before we get back on topic. Uh we haven't played Google Feud in a while. Do you remember this? Google yes. Feud? All right. So uh, I'm going to type into Google, big data is, and then you try to get me, uh, just real quick, name three things that you think would fill in the blanks for big data is that would show up in the list. Uh, oh gosh. Um, big data is cloud. Okay. Big data is not that big. Okay. And uh, big data is, oh gosh, uh, dumb. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I just uh, tried to think of like what would be the like the craziest thing I was in Google. Okay. So, yeah, there were some crazy ones here. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of my favorites. So the the top one, which wasn't necessarily my favorite, but it's just the top one, is big data is better data. Which I'm like, okay. what? How? I, okay, I guess maybe you could. You're saying, I guess maybe the the result, the idea there is that you know if you have more data, then you can make better decisions. Maybe I don't know. Um, there were some weird ones, but some of my other favorite ones though is big data is watching you. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> uh, and That's then awesome. And then I was so surprised you didn't say one of these. Big data is dead. Is wow. bad or is good? Gosh, those are all. I should have. I should I have like, guessed that. Surely you're going to get one of those, right? I'm sorry. I'm yeah. off my game tonight. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get back into this. But first, this episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning. There's new frameworks, languages, patterns, practices. There's so many resources out there, though. Where should you go? Meet educative.io educative.io is a browser-based learning environment allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure a local environment 
and the courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but most importantly, they're engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth like a book, so there's no need to scrub through hours of video to get to the parts that you really want to focus in on. And amazingly, all of their courses offer a free trial and a 30-day return policy, so there's no risk to you. You can try anything you want and always feel comfortable that, you know what, you've got that 30-day return policy if you needed it. But hey, even better, they just recently introduced subscriptions. So now you have even more comfort because you could just get the subscription and basically you get to see every course they have in their entire catalog. And our listeners can get a 10% off of any course or subscription by going to educative.io slash coding box. As you know, we've been talking about distributed systems a lot lately. And so I keep going back to reference the, the uh, course that I love so much called grokking the system design interview. And I wanted to, to particularly mention the section they have on Twitter, which is not one of the ones that you can view freely, but you can still go to that course and check out one of the other uh, sections. But I wanted to mention Twitter because they had uh, two interesting use cases that kind of tied in with some of the polyglot type stuff with the persistence that we we're talking about tonight, where Twitter has some kind of very different use cases where most people have few followers and they're able to, to make use of a technique that they describe in the course called fan out. But a small number of Twitter users have billions of followers, like say a Kanye West or a, a Taylor Swift or whatever. And so it's such a dramatically different use case that is different from 99.9% of the users, but can just crush the way that the algorithm was originally set up. And so uh, the course is really great about kind of describing these two use cases and, and how Twitter deals with these two use cases by kind of taking two different approaches. And I uh, thought that was just a really cool section that kind of tied in with some things we're talking about tonight. Yeah, absolutely fits in with the the whole uh book series that we've been doing later lately about designing data intensive applications. So listen, go ahead, get yourself a subscription today. You can start learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks and get 10% off any course or off of a subscription today. All right, now we're going to talk about graph-like data uh, models, and we're not going to go too deep in this just because, uh, like, I haven't done a lot of work with graph databases. I don't know about you, Outlaw, um, but it's just not really something I've spent a lot of time in, and so I don't want to kind of mislead anybody on that. So we're going to skip a couple things about some of the specific languages for dealing with graph databases just because that's kind of hard to describe anyway and not spending any time with it, just kind of rough. Uh, but I want to mention, uh, like we talked about a lot last episode, we talked about the, when to decide to use a, a document database versus a relational database. And we didn't talk about graph-like data models at the time. And talking about them now, it comes up because as your relationships grow and things tend towards complexity and you get more and more many, many relationships, the relational model starts to break down a little bit. Because you have to start relating more and more things and it gets complicated to query. So there's this uh, set of graph databases that operate just like the graph algorithms that we talked about in episode 163. No. No. 85. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Remember that? We talked about like um, Like graph algorithms, acyclic graphs. Um, a star algorithms, things like that, uh, traveling salesman problems. So, uh, all those, uh, there's a set of databases that are built around those concepts where you 
kind of start with a node and you traverse the graph doing your filtering and finding and, and inserting and things like that. And uh, so the book talks about bringing these types of databases in once you start having too many, many, many relationships and it becomes painful, but they didn't really define a, like a set number. It's not like 10 many to many is too many or five is too many too many. So I don't really know how to decide where that line is to know like this is too painful. It's time to swap. Too many. Okay. So if you have too many, many to many relationships and that's when you need to switch to a graph database. So already yeah, we have too many minis in that statement. <laughs> yeah, that's the too many, many minis, too many, many to minis. That's like kind of the distinction in the book is like basically if you have too many, many to minis, you should probably switch to a graph like data model. But there's no real guidance on when that is. Uh, I know that I've worked with graph databases a little bit, just kind of exploring, messing around with, you know, Docker and kind of tutorials, whatever. I've, I've done a couple of proof of concepts just to see how something that was hard to do in SQL would work out in graph SQL and graph databases. And my experience with them have been really good so far because the things that I've had a really tough time expressing in a SQL-like language with a relational database have been easy in the graph database. And that's what I wanted. But uh, in the experience that I did, and remember, I'm a total noob, noob here, so maybe I was missing some basic common things like indexing or whatever that would have helped. But uh, the performance for the, the size of data I was trying to, to achieve just wasn't really adding up. So I didn't end up doing uh, going forward with any of the POCs I kind of messed with. But it wasn't because of developer experience because that was the thing that was most amazing to me. I wanted to find these relationships and I was able to kind of step it out and write a query that was easy to read. And that was very much <laughs> the opposite of its equivalent in SQL. So now when I kind of think about trying to decide, you know, if a graph, if graph database is worthy of talking about bringing into an architecture, the distinguishing factor that kind of triggers me to even consider it is how miserable it is to query my data. Okay. Not that makes sense. So like, how do you know when you've got too many, many, many relational database is when it gets to be miserable to query them to write the query or to run the query, to write the query, to write the query as the human. When your mm-hmm. queries get too painful to write or too painful to generate. Cause I would, I would expect database. it to be like the execution of it would be the problem. Hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of that's my own distinction and personal definition is like when it gets too painful for me to want to write queries. Now, now we should call out though, like just to you know avoid any confusion here, you know, because we talked about before like how everything had a, a query language and they might just put like their letter in front of QL, so you might have like a EQL or uh, Jira's uh, JQL or you know um, Elastic's KSQL. Uh, but this GraphQL does not equal graph database query language. Right. Yeah. There's a distinction there. The GraphQL is just a kind of specification, but it turns out it does map well to graphy type concepts. So there's one graph database, dgraph in particular, uh, that's, that's kind of popular now that uses GraphQL as its query language. And that's because you can kind of do these like infinite net levels of nesting. So if we're talking about like a social media example, like I can do something like give me the friends of my friends who support this political party. And so in GraphQL, that's easy to express declaratively because it's basically like, you know, person, 
personal, you know, I don't, I don't know what the language ended up being, but it's something that's kind of easy to express and sounds and looks just like I said it. But that's something that can be really tough to do in a, a relational database where you say, like, find me the friends of my friends that like this thing because it's joining a table onto itself and it just gets kind of weird. So I came up with a kind of another social media example that's uh, kind of contrived, but it's the, the kind of thing that the way I'm going to say this is going to be very similar to the way I would write uh, like the the graph query. I've done a little bit with um, Neo4j is the, the main one I've used. And so the uh, I'm blanking on the, the language that they use now, uh, the main one. But the, the way you would write it almost looks like the sentence. Fetch the top 10 people that are friends with my friends but not friends with me and have liked pages that I like and let's sort on our common interests. Okay. So think about that from a a relational perspective. It's miserable. It's like table people joining on, you know, friends, which is basically a people to people, mini to mini. And then we got to join back to that to make sure that it's not related to me. And then we've got to do an exist there to make sure that they're not, also friends with me we have to do another exist to make sure that they're friends with the other friends. And so it just ends up being this big, like kind of self referencing nightmare to write in SQL. And you're going to end up going easily over like 40 lines of like very complicated, like tricky SQL rather than like something that almost looks like an English sentence. Right. But even, even as you say it though, it's kind of like, okay, I could see the value in something like, like you you know, you're coming at this from the point of view of like a social platform kind of example. And you're like, yeah, I could see that totally being a value, right? Like if you wanted to add a feature to your application, that's like, if you were writing a social app, right? Like you're, you're a, a young Mark Zuckerberg sitting in your dorm room writing this thing. You're like, Hey, uh, here's other people that you might like to be friends with because they're already friends with your friends and they like the same things that you like. So yeah, you should get to know these people. Yeah, but that seems like a that seems like a valid kind of use case, right? Yeah, absolutely, and it's one of the three use cases that they gave. So, um, like social graphs, basically uh, something like a LinkedIn or a Facebook, where you got friends of friends, and, and you think about Facebook, like you've got entities like people or media or articles, and people can like media; they can be friends with other people. You can be married to someone else on Facebook. You can have these different complicated relationships. You can work for a company. You can define all these kind of different connections. And what's really cool about that. Uh, is, you know, one that the entities and the relationships don't have to be homogenous. So I can kind of like come up with a new entity tomorrow for Facebook and say car. So now user Joe drives this kind of car. The relationship is drives the entities involved. There are a person and a car. And so that's something I can add to that model without adjusting any existing schemas, without adding new tables. You know, I basically can kind of just throw these things in there to my existing graph database and it doesn't affect anything else I've got going on. So it's a very flexible way to represent these kind of real world situations. And then it's immediately usable in those queries. We can say something like, uh, show me friends of my friends that haven't bought a new car in 10 years, you know, assuming you've got the data for that kind of thing. And maybe you can kind of show them our highlight posts uh, where I post about my new car or something like that to maybe encourage them to go shopping for a new car. So it's all scary stuff. So let's put, let's take a step back here though, and just kind of like describe some, some concepts around the graph database, right? So document DBs have documents, relational databases have tables and rows and columns. And we should say that in inside of the document DB documents, there's you know properties within that document, right? 
and uh, you know property values in and values in those documents. But graph databases have uh, they have vertices, which are the nodes in the graph. So like Joe might be one node, I might be another node, and then there's edges, which would define the relationship between those nodes. So uh, there might be a a line you know from my node connecting to Joe's node that would say like, hey, these guys are friends, right? Yep. You can have additional metadata on there too. Like maybe they became friends on this day or, you know, other stuff that's like a tribe example, but, um, it, it's hard for me to say vertices. I never, I always want to say nodes. Yeah. I've got a bad habit of kind of saying that and the, they're interchangeable in this, uh, same with edges. Sometimes you'll have edges referred to as relationships or vertexes. And I really hate talking about vertices and vertexes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, I would just, agree I with, that. with that. Yeah. I, I kind of like the nodes and edges better, but, um, but now going back to your car example, though, now you can see why like, hey, adding that other car with just another line drawing Joe to is like, hey, Joe drives, a, you know, I don't know, Ferrari because. I, oh, OK. Yeah, I, I was just a wild guess there. I guess they're right. Wow. That was that was a long shot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely in a truck. So much, dude. I, love I didn't Ferrari know Ferrari truck. made a truck, but OK. Uh, oh, my bad. Oh, yeah. you're talking about uh, Ford. Oh, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah so so you can see how like you know adding those additional relationships it, you kind of have the flexibility which is what you were getting at with the uh the facebook example where like if you wanted to add in you know the capability for like uh you know hey these people drive these cars or you know these are the articles that these people like right like you know making that additional uh node and then drawing relationships to it is a little bit more flexible Yep. And so uh, a lot of times you'll hear like Facebook associated with uh, graphs, same with uh, LinkedIn. Another uh, kind of common functionality that are, are two more that you may not uh, necessarily think of as being like graph oriented uh, is actually one is kind of search. So like a, a web graph, uh, a graph of the internet where you might have uh, your nodes or vertices are pages and the edges are links. And so the initial early versions of Google was built all on this kind of concept of page rank which basically had these nodes as pages and it counted the links between them to figure out how to rank stuff so that things that were linked to more often showed up uh, more prominently and they kind of thought of those as being more authoritative and that's basically a, a graph type algorithm and something that would be really hard to do in sql because you have to do almost like a recursive kind of like you know if you had two tables basically <laughs> a web page and then you had a breakout table with like a web page ID and a, a link and another web page ID to try and query that to count to see what's the most popular uh, is, is just complicated because things can kind of uh, link to each other. It's a graphs graph can go in circles. And so it's just kind of like a, this weird recursive kind of relationship that is hard to express in a relational database, definitely in a document, but is just kind of natural in a graph. Yeah. And uh, you know, another example that, you have here is for maps, right? Yep. So you, you could think about like any address, like how many different ways could you possibly get there? Right. So if that address is the, the, the node, then all of the roads would be the edges to get to it. Yep. And uh, the data you could have on those edges might be the speed limit or whether it has tolls or not, or whether it's traffic conditions. Yeah. 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 All sorts of stuff. So all that stuff can be factored into this thing. So maps are a great case where you might want to have, um, 
you know, of graph database backing that and something that doesn't really fit very well in relationship. But still, it's I have a hard time really kind of putting my finger on the one thing to say, like, this is when you should switch to a graph. But we're, you know, we're seeing some, like, some cyclic stuff and some, you know, just recursive relationships, but it's still kind of hard to really define that or to know it when you see it in the wild. Well, I mean, I think the more we talk about it, though, the more I, th- I tend to agree with your, I tend to like your many, too many, many to minis. Right. Yeah. Like when, when that, when you start to get a lot of those or it starts to feel a little heavy handed or like your usage, uh, you know, that, that seems to be the types of querying that you want to do more often than not, then it sounds like, you know, you don't have to necessarily use the graph database for everything, but at least for those, those instances, it sounds like you hit the nail on the head the first time. Yeah. It, that's what I kept thinking about it too. It's like when you spend, when you're spending like three hours in your SQL editor trying to get this query down, and it's weird and doesn't fit right. And you want to change the, the way you've represented your data like five different times. Like you may want, <laughs> like that's kind of a sign that you may be dealing with a different type of data that would work better in a different database. It may still not be worth bringing a new technology for if it's a small use case or something, but uh, at least you can kind of recognize like, Oh, hey, this is a graph problem that I'm trying to solve with a, you know, essentially a tree of SQL of relations. I feel like a, a Bill Ingvall uh, meme should fit here. Like, here's your what? sign. Remember the here's your sign comedian? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, wh- how do you know when you need to use a, a graph database? Here's your sign. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we talked about him recently. And it was not the other guy that I thought it was, Jeff Foxworthy. Oh. Yep, not that is not the sign guy. Jeff Foxworthy is not the sign guy. You are correct in that. <laughs> yes. Um. All right. So, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just cleaning up the notes a little bit. So oh, okay. I was going to say that um, uh, another example, um, kind of like a similar to the maps there, and similar to the way that uh, graph databases are kind of flexible. We talked about the the ability to add new things in is uh, some things are really hard to represent in a strictly normalized way. And the example that we saw in the book is basically um, America has states and states have counties, right? And other countries like France, for example, has uh, departments and something else that I forgot. Uh, Departments and regions. And these things have slightly different rules. um, And even in America too, like, you know, you have a city that may span multiple states or multiple counties. And things get kind of gross to try and and do that. And uh, so in a graph database, I can associate France and then say France, you know, this country has these departments and these departments have these regions. And then I can go over to the United States uh, node and say, well, it doesn't have departments, but it does have states and states have counties. And so I can kind of keep these two different uh, similar but different models in the same database. And I don't have to try and normalize them because when you think about how you would represent uh, that same kind of situation in the SQL database, what you'd have is a country table with country ID and your country name. Now to link the departments, you'd need a breakout table called maybe departments. It's got like a country ID in it and also the name of the department. And then for the US, you'd have a, a table for states with a country ID linking back to the country. So that means whenever you're querying to like display that data on the page, you have to join that country table to both the departments and to the states, even though you know it's only going to ever have one. And then you have to do that hop again for the departments and the counties. 
So am I making sense there? Yeah, I, I was trying to think of it like um, how we might be able to like make it more relatable to those of us in America that uh, mm-hmm. if you were to just stay with like consider DC, right? Because it's not a state, but it's also not a city. Right. So it's its own kind of little entity that's unique than to every other part of the United States, right? It doesn't really fit in your typical um, uh, relational model of how you would define even just the United States. Although I guarantee you that most people would just put DC in the city of any relational model. Yeah, it's tough. I've seen um, taxes done in systems where it's like, um, okay, here's the state tax that, that we charge on any sort of item, state sales tax. And then you start selling internationally. You know, oh, oh, okay. Well, now I guess we'll have an international tax rate that can apply in the country, but we'll have the states override it if we have a state. And if they don't have a state, then we uh, we just we'll make this a left join now. And it just starts to get more complicated. That's that's one you know like simple hop there. But like when you start talking about tax districts and maybe like departments do have tax rates, but regions don't, but states do, but counties don't, or maybe they cities. do have, maybe one supersedes or maybe one others are cumulative or, or some cities have their own tax or they might have tax on specific items. Yep. Yeah. And to do that relationally, it just gets kind of gross because you start doing these things where you break out things into separate tables, but they, uh, and they'll link back to another table, but there's certain rules that are not expressed in the data that like say for example that you don't you can't have a country that has both states and regions because so, that's mutually exclusive but the the database doesn't guarantee that constraint. So the flexibility then of the graph databases also make for great evolvability then because yep. you might not know you you know what you need today for today's purpose and then tomorrow comes along and it's like oh yeah you also need her to add in France it's like oh no worries i can I can easily make their model for how their, uh, you know, hierarchy of, of how the regions are broken down, you know, into the different nomenclature. I can break that part into our database just easily. Right. Yep. Yeah. And it also, that flexibility can be a double edged sword though. Cause of course now if you want to implement a common feature, you might have to go kind of explore that twice with those two different kinds of or you have to have some domain knowledge to know like okay well it could be a this or it could be a that and these concepts are similar so you have to know more and make those decisions yourself rather than just kind of getting it for free by adding a column to a table all right so just when you were selling me on graph databases you went and said that so now i guess i'll go back to document database all the things yeah, well, I do think we're, we're, it seems like we're living ever more and more. If, you, if you're if you dealing with a lot of data, if you're uh, building a data-intensive application, you're probably going to have more than one sort of data store. You, maybe a search engine, you know, a document database. I, I didn't know where you were going with that. But, yeah, I would totally agree with that, though. Like, it used yeah. to, you know, 20 years ago, you'd be fine with just a relational database of some kind. Right, whatever it was, whether it be an Oracle, a SQL Server, or a DB2, whatever you you were fine, right? But yeah, you're right. Now it's like, you know, at a minimum, you're going to want something like a, a a search engine to add on top of it. So, so like an Elastic, for example. Uh, you know, you might you might have some other document DB that you use just for like, you know, these use cases all go against that database. But you know, occasionally you might go against this, uh, you know search index or maybe query back to a relational database or maybe the relational database is just kind of like the data warehouse that's 
you know, sitting underneath all of these other ones, you know, yep. feeding all the other ones. Like, yeah, I don't know. And it's I common agree. to export to a data warehouse just for reporting. So I kind of dump that stuff into a, a basically some sort of like OLAP solution that's specific to do that. And then sales can run their reports or whatever on it. Yeah. And what about caching servers? Things like Redis or um, whatever, whatever the other one is. You know, th- those things are common and those are kind of like they're data stores for sure. And they're kind of like a database in some ways. Key value. Yeah. Well, I mean, how far would you go with this though? Would you consider key value a database? I mean, if it'd be a very simple one, right? Like one table with one, one table that has two columns with one primary key. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I've heard uh, someone recently referred to environment variables kind of like a database because it kind of mm-hmm. like, viewed as like a key value store that's resident on your, you know, your environment. It seems weird to me. I've heard a little bit about etcd. I don't know what that is, but I think it's kind of like a, let me see here. Are we yeah, talking about Linux? Distributed reliable key value store oh. for a distributed system. Yeah, but when I think about Etsy, I still think about like file systems. So maybe I'm just mixing that up there. Yeah, are you saying like when you say Etsy, you're saying like ETC Etsy? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, Etsy D. Yeah, it looks like it has nothing to do with the uh, file structure, but I, I can't oh. help but see it when I. You can't <laughs> I see unsee it, right? Yeah, I get it. So, yeah, uh, you, have, you have this question here, and I kind of want to steal your thunder, but I don't have an answer for it. Go for but, it. but how how well do graph databases perform in scale? Yeah, and now that's something that particularly when I was doing my prof, like kind of POC phase or whatever for some stuff, uh, I really wanted to know. And of course, the answer was it depends. And you could find some use cases and people talking online about how well we've got terabytes of data and it works great for us. But then you look and you know deep dive deeper what they're talking about, and maybe they don't have very complex relationships. At the same time, you could see someone that says, oh, this scales, you know, terribly, but you look at what they're doing, you know, you could see why that would scale poorly. And so it's, it's really hard to say. And then, of course, there's a lot of uh, information put out by the various database da- uh, vendors. And there are some for-profit uh, databases uh, that are out there. Graph database like TigerDB comes to mind. Um, Eric Gatto, and that's on it. Um, the A1, <laughs> crap, I forget the name. That, uh, of course, uh, you know, have all sorts of articles talking about how fast they are and have some, you know, interesting performance numbers where they show how much faster they can query than a relational database in this very specific use case. And so it's really hard to, to figure that out. And so I don't have a general rule of thumb where I can say like, oh yeah, they're faster or slower than a relational or document database. But I gotta believe that they do pretty well when you consider that somebody like a Facebook is using it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I would think so. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably pretty good. Yeah, it's probably good. Yeah, if it's good enough for Facebook, it's probably good enough for you too. <laughs> well, well, I mean, if we're being fair though, what works for a company that has 2 billion users isn't necessarily the same solution you need for your 20. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, very true. And yeah, it's probably fine. Uh, like, you know, I kind of made the joke about uh, big data not being big data. Like that's for a long time uh, when big, the term big data first started coming out, people started talking about Hadoop. Um, it was all the rage. And then you'd talk to people about their big data solutions and find out they only had 10 gigs of data ever. You know, it's like, oh, I, I think when you read those articles and you do the stuff like they're talking about terabytes. And you, so you're, you're trying to pro- go through all these extra steps to deal with this overhead for something that could be done with a relational database. No problem. 
but I mean, part of that too is it's just it's the it, it it's just like common to all of all of us though. Like as developers, like we always want to play with like, hey, what's the new big cool thing, right? Yep. So, I mean, I get it. Like you know, it kind of like when we tease Alan about him like trying to solve you know something for a billion concurrent users, right? Like, yeah, I, I you know I get it. You might not need it, but that's what you want to. You wanted to like have an excuse to like play with some code that works with whatever that thing is, right? Yeah, a ring, a Ringo is the name I was trying to come up with. Uh, thanks, Andrew Diamond. Uh, but I want to mention too that Docker, thanks to uh, us living in a containerized world, it's made it so easy to spin up like a Neo4j or DGraph or any of these others really easily. So you can just kind of run a single command, and you're running in the database, and you can find a getting started guide on any of their websites. And be just ingesting data and experimenting with that kind of workflow. I mean, instantly. So prototyping is something you can do in a couple of hours to see if it's something you're even worth and spending some time in. And I will say the query languages that I've spent some time with, um, Cypher is what I was trying to remember of uh, in, in Neo4j is, uh, at first I oh. was horrified because I saw there were like these arrows pointing and these lines and it didn't even look like programming. And so I was kind of initially put off when I realized how quick, quick quickly and easily and mapped to like the English expression of the problem. I kind of fell in love with a little bit. And so uh, I'm excited to go back and play with graph databases one of these days. Yeah. I remember cause Cypher was in the book too. And, and um, as soon as you said it, I was like, Oh yeah, we're not talking about Cypher as in anything to do with cryptography. We're talking about right. Cypher as in a reference to the character from the movie, the matrix. Right. Yep. Oh yeah, I should mention too that there's uh there's a couple of really cool things going on. Uh, there's a lot of innovation, particularly in the, the graph database space right now. There's um this thing called Tinkerpop, which I don't fully understand, but basically the idea is that it kind of um provides you like a common platform for using uh like one language across multiple different vendors because the de- the deal is that it's kind of like SQL where it, all relational databases kind of do the same kind of thing. Same with graph databases; they're all kind of built around the same kind of model. So the fact that there's like different programming languages for them uh, is kind of weird. And so what the Tinkerprop does is kind of provides a platform you, for you to kind of pick the language that you want to use to work with the database that you want to use. So it's kind of this weird division between the language that you work with and the database that you use. And you normally think of those things being tightly bound. But Tinkerprop drives a line between and says, yeah, hey, you want to use the Gremlin language with uh, Neo4j? Fine, do that. If you want to use Cypher for... Uh, a Rango DB, like, all right, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And so it'll kind of act as like a translation layer to kind of type uh, or to translate into the language that the database needs based on the language that you want to use. Huh. It's like a transpiler for Graph SQL. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh, or as Alan would say, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> that was the thing that somebody was teasing about. <laughs> yeah okay yeah that's awesome <laughs> well uh, i recommend looking at the graph uh the Gre- the gremlin language in particular and uh it's got a super cute website <laughs> and uh it says some really good uh examples of what that language looks like and I, I encourage just going to look at it just because of how funky it looks to if you're used to doing like kind of imperative like c sharp javascript like languages if you go look at like a gremlin and uh you look at the way you program that or go look at a cipher for neo4j and just look at an example query it's like what <laughs> this works uh, it, it does it's pretty cool huh 
Well, you know, they gotta be serious when they have like a math formula as part of their logo. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, you know, one thing I wanted to mention. So, uh, I've been listening to a lot of the GCP podcast, uh, Google Cloud Form, Cloud Form podcast. And, uh, I listened to an episode talking about CloudSQL, which is basically their kind of, um, bandaged either Postgres or MySQL or SQL Server. Uh, and <laughs> the, the person on there, uh, mentioned dealing with SQL queries that were 50 lines long and how miserable that was uh, in relational databases. <laughs> and you're like, only 50? I don't know, I'm like, if you've only seen the horrible, horrible things I've done to relational databases, 50 lines is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like, let me get some unions in there. Let me get some CTEs. Like, oh, man, I could have 50, 50 lines is just variables. Give me a break. <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize there was a GCP podcast, but why would there not be one? So, yeah. It's really good. I'll tell you, though, they pan. So if they have two authors, they'll have one that's heavy on the left, one heavy on the right. And I, I, oh, yeah, that's yeah, so much. Yeah. You got a dual mono. Come on. Dual mono. Yeah. I, I've tweeted them about it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. They, uh, they'll also Google does a Kubernetes podcast that's super good, but they also do the panning thing. I think they have the same editors. Oh, man. So you've been warned. I, I need an app that mixes the mono. That'd be a great feature. This episode is sponsored by Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a fast and enjoyable project management platform that breaks down silos and brings teams together to ship value, not just features. I mean, let's face it. Slow, confusing UX is so last decade. Clubhouse is lightning fast, built for today's software teams with only the features and best practices you need to succeed and nothing more. And here are a few highlights about Clubhouse. They've got flexible workflows, which are easily customizable workflow states for teams or projects of any size. They've got advanced filtering, which lets you quickly filter by project or team to see how everything's progressing. And you've got sprint planning, so you can set your weekly priorities with iterations and you can let a Clubhouse run the schedule for you. And then Clubhouse integrates with the tools that you love. So they tie into things like... Um, uh, support your services and workflows so you can get notifications, for example, about a story in Slack or update the status of a story with a pull request. So um, these are really great integrations with the tools that I'm already using, like Figma or whatever. And so you can build your own integration with their APIs as well in case there's not a, an integration that's publicly available for you already. Yeah, and make one that fits your specific needs. And Clubhouse is an enjoyable collaboration tool. Easily drag and drop UI. There's dark mode. I mean, what developer doesn't like dark mode? We've, we've actually had that debate many times. You know, dark mode or light mode, right? Uh, hey, you want to make fun? Just have some light with, uh, you know, some light, uh, you know, communication along with what your pull request is or, you know, what your ticket status is. There's emoji reactions and more. So when you're doing your best work, is when your team is clicking and life is good. Now, Clubhouse has recently made all of their core features completely free for teams up to 10 users. I, I can't, like, we would have to say, like, Alan would say, that is freaking beautiful. And they're offering Clubhouse, uh, sorry, they're offering Coding Blocks listeners two additional free months on any paid plan with unlimited users and access to premium features. So give it a try. You can go to clubhouse.io slash coding blocks. That's clubhouse.io slash coding blocks and find out what makes Clubhouse so awesome. All right. So with that, I want to mention some resources we like. I will have a link here to the book, uh, Designing Data Intensive Applications, that we've been talking about for a long time. Uh, in particular, tonight we talked about uh, just different query languages and a little bit about graph databases. And then moving on to uh, 
Al, uh, somebody's favorite portion of the show. It's Alan's favorite portion of the show. <clears throat> oh. It's the tip of the week. And, uh, yeah, so he isn't here, obviously, as we've mentioned, but, um, you know, in his spirit, since he would normally have like 15 billion, uh, tips, uh, we each came up with 20 of our own. Do you want, you ready to go with your 20 first? Let me uh, grab a drink of water first, but then yeah. Uh, okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there's not 20. Uh, but so, okay. So I have a couple tips here. One was and they're they're both based off of a conversation we had with um E Lickman in uh Slack. And uh I think we talked about this before, but I don't know if we ever made it officially a um tip of the week. So I thought, okay, fine, you know, this would be the time to do it. And um that is if you've ever wanted the equivalent, if you're used to a Linux environment and you're used to being able to do something like a tail minus F on a file and just watch it, you know, like a log file, right? And you can like, as new traffic comes in, you can just watch the next line of the log file go in and you can keep doing that forever. Right. But you want the equivalent of that on a windows environment. Uh, it can be done. So it would be a PowerShell uh, commandlet that you would use called get content. So uh, you would say get content, the file name dash wait. And that's how it would work there. But there was another really cool one that, um, uh, was shared with us on, in that Slack conversation that, uh, so I thought that I'll share it and it, it's going to be difficult to follow in, you know, just listening to it. So just know that you can go to the show notes and you'll be able to like see this. And if you're like, whatever your podcast player is, like you could just hit the show notes directly as you're listening to us and follow along and you'll be able to see this example there. But um, if you wanted to be able to recursively find files that match a particular regular expression pattern and you wanted to see some context around that to like, maybe you're looking for something. Um, and in his case, what he was looking for was like uh, different includes. They were happening because um, in, in different parts of his application, like different, uh, like imagine you want to look at, Hey, let's find all of the using statements, um, you know, that are using some particular library or something like that. Imagine that kind of scenario, right? But you, your mileage may vary for why you might want to use it, but you could use another, uh, set of PowerShell commandlets that you start with get child item, then whatever files you're going to look for. So let's just say it was like star dot, um, C sharp or CS, right? So get child item star.cs dash recurse because you want to recursively look through all the subdirectories, then a pipe, then select dash string dash pattern, and then in single quotes, enter your regular expression pattern, and then dash context, and then the number of lines that you want. So, uh, you know, the, the lines before and the lines after the context of what you're at. So in this example, if you wanted to see like the first 10 lines above whatever your pattern is, you'd say 10 comma zero. So again, I, that's going to be a hard one to follow along with, but know that you can go to the show notes and, and see the example of what I'm talking about. And, and you know, bless PowerShell for having autocomplete. <laughs> yes. Terminal. Oh, and the best part that I love about uh, PowerShell's autocomplete though, is it's not just on the command but on the uh uh the the optional Arts. arguments to the command as well so like even with like dash recurse right you could type in like dash rec tab and it'll finish out recurse for yeah. you 
It's so awesome. Yeah, it's nice. And I know you can do the same thing in grep. I think it's like dash capital C for context. And it's like dash capital B for before. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, but you got to like remember. I remember like years ago, they were. I, I remember hearing talk about like bash was going to get tab completion on the arguments, but I guess it just never happened. Yeah, there's probably some plugin or something you can do that will kind of help out with that. But uh, I've still never known anyone to actually use that day to day. Yeah, or if it ever did happen, maybe I'm just not lucky enough to be on a distro that uses it. Yeah, and most of my bashing these days happens inside the context of like Docker containers. So I'm definitely yeah. not going to be installing, you know, whatever plugins on, on those things. Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, so, you know what? We didn't mention that E. Lichtman <laughs> brought these tips to our attention while pulling tips from the website. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because cool. he, cause he, he thought that we had already mentioned uh, something similar to this. And that's, that's what brought up the whole conversation. So. Yeah, I did something similar uh, and after episode 55, and I gathered all the no- the tips up to episode 55, and then I never did it again. I didn't maintain it. <laughs> but now he sent us the script so we could start it up again. All right, so for my tips, uh, so I don't know if you saw this one yet, Outlaw. Uh, this was sent to us by Mark- Micro G, who we talk about all the time, and it's called uh, Application Inspector. And this is in the Microsoft GitHub account. But it's not just C Sharp. What it is is a source code analyzer that f- surfaces features of interest and other characteristics to answer the question, what's in it for code bases? And it uses static analysis and a rules engine. And so uh, if you scroll down to uh, the link we've got in the, uh, the show notes here and take a look at like a screenshot, you can see that you can run this thing on source code and it'll give you like a little highlighted thing. This is basically like, Hey, this integrates with Azure and Twitter and Postgres and, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, environment variables and GitHub. And it doesn't integrate, or we didn't find any other integrations for any of these other services. And so have you ever seen that, um, that website that does this sort of thing where it's basically like, what's it built on and people manually kind of maintain that stuff. This is a programmatic way of finding that out. So maybe if you're investigating using some new service or project or something on GitHub, you could download that repo just like you normally would and then run this service on it. And it's going to go out and lift for look, like sniff for known integrations and say, Hey, this talks out to uh, Twitter and to, uh, I don't know, Coinbase. <laughs> so maybe you don't want to run it because this might be trying to steal your bitcoins or whatever. Huh? That is That's pretty cool. That is. That's it's got OS uh, system changes too, so it can like try to detect if it's going to write to disk or read to disk or whatever. And of course, like all that stuff, you know, it's basically using kind of thumbprint type technologies where it's trying to like or fingerprint. So it's trying to figure out like based on common use, common usage patterns. So I'm sure it's not going to be perfect, but still, it's pretty nice just to even be able to see like a high level. Like if someone's like really trying to trick you, then this probably isn't going to help too much because you can obfuscate a lot of this stuff. But, uh, I mean, just for a general purpose, like, what's this code going to do if I start it? Like, this is a pretty great tool. Yeah. And I kind of want to run it on my own stuff now. And I do have another one. Uh, and this one has a special place in my heart. This is from uh, Notorious NVG, <laughs> NVG, the uh, Mad Viking God. And this is Muzzle, which is Mac only. But uh, what it does is it stops notifications while you're screen sharing. I don't know how they're detecting it, but if you've ever been in a meeting and you're like sharing your screen, like we, like Al and I work remote. And so this happens all the time. 
uh, do you have notifications turned on, say, for Slack or something, and someone messages you, sometimes it'll pop up and be visible on your screen. And uh, there's definitely been times when I've been in the meetings or I've been watching someone else's screen share. Well, like someone will message them maybe who's in the meetings to kind of say like, you know, hey, that's crazy or, you know, something that is just awkward that <laughs> you don't necessarily want to be seen. No. And it stinks that that's public. Because maybe you, if you sent that message, you didn't realize that it was going to show up on the big screen for everybody to see. You're just trying to send a private message. And so this is a tool that will silence all of those Mac notifications while you're sharing your screen. Now, how is that different than um, the built-in do not disturb? Because, like, I forget, it's been there for a, a couple of versions now in Mac OS, right? So this will automatically turn on do not disturb when you screen share. Oh, okay. So so it's just using the built-in functionality. It's, its real thing is just, it just automatically does it during a screen share. Right, yeah, so it's not doing anything. Zoom, it's like a plug-in for Hangouts, all these other things, and so okay. when you start the screen share, it immediately turns it on, so you don't have to remember that ahead of time. I gotcha. I gotcha. Oh yeah, that is that is helpful. Yeah, and, and uh, if you go to the website, it's actually super cool. So uh, you go to muzzleapp.com, and it's got notifications showing up on the right. There are the kinds of notifications that you would not want showing up on uh, <laughs> on the screen share, like, "Hey, it's uh, your court date reminder tomorrow." Or uh, somebody breaking up with you or your parents kicking you out of your house. Oh, some or, of them are uh, <laughs> not even safe for work. Yep, for sure. Yeah, the names. It's Yeah, so it's it's comical. It's worth going to this website just to see. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty comical. I'm like, I'm just sitting oh. here. Uh, I'm, I'm lost just watching it. It, it f- has all of my attention. Because yeah, they are uh, some funny. of these are really good. This is actually, uh, this is really good. I'm so Let's just move on with the show, and then uh, I'm going to watch this for a little while. Yeah, it's that is hilarious. Uh, wait till the one from your your mom comes in. Yeah, wait wait for that one. All right, that's all I'm going to say. Oh my gosh! All right. Well, uh, like Joe mentioned earlier, be sure to leave us a a comment on this episode uh, for your chance to win a copy of the book. And uh, with that. Be sure to uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or more using your favorite podcast app in case if uh, like a friend gave you a link or they're, you're, uh, they're letting you listen on their device or something like that. Um, you can find us at www.codingblocks.net. And while you're there, you can also find some uh, helpful links at slash review uh, where you could leave us a review on one of those favorite platforms. And... While you're at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussion, and more. And send your feedback, question, and rants to Slack. And you can uh, get there by going to codingblocks.net slash Slack and sending yourself an invite. And you can also follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or send us a message uh, over there. Or you can go to codingblocks.net and find all our social links at the top of the page if they're still there. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't checked today. Yeah. No, they're there. All right. Well, another twit is in the can. Hey, oh, wait. Man. Wrong show.